Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk Podcast. You're listening to episode 135. You're going to hear some familiar voices in this podcast, other than my own, of course, because this is part two of my conversation with Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin, the principals of Caridia. In our last episode, I spoke with Mark and Howard about how they came together, and you can still find that podcast on our podcast page. Go to medtechconference.com. Today, we'll talk about their highest profile success to date, Ardian, which is easily one of the biggest stories in medtech startups over the past two decades. Ardian had a huge win, a huge high. In 2011, Medtronic announced that it would pay $800 million upfront for this startup company that pushed the once kind of crazy sounding idea of ablating renal nerves to lower hypertension. Ardian raised about $70 million from some really excellent blue chip C, excuse me, VCs, was forged in the foundry, so had a great pedigree. And the VCs proudly shared that the earnouts for Ardian could push the, the final purchase price over a billion dollars. So this was a huge win for MedTech when it desperately needed it. Hell, it was 2011, three years after the big recession, everyone needed a big win. But a 10x return in MedTech, that felt really good. But then came the low. A day before, a couple of days before JP Morgan's healthcare meeting in 2014, Medtronic announced that early results of Simplicity HTN3, this is the third clinical trial and a larger trial that included randomized, single-blind, sham-controlled elements, produced disappointing results, showed no difference between the control arm and the treatment arms, so things were bleak. Renal innovation was dead until it wasn't. Let's get into this interview. Do you like talking about Ardian? I mean, or do you feel it's sort sure. of, uh, you, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was an enormous success story and I, and I kind of, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's just classic. It's, 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 it follows a classic drama, you know, it's unrealistic. It's, it's a med tech opera. I like to think of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, med tech yeah, highs and now, lows. <laughs> now we have, we have the redemption stage. So we've been uh, exactly. glorified. Yes. Yeah, they're redeemed. Yeah. You know, now it's fun to talk about it. There was yeah. a dark day. Even <laughs> yeah. So, hey, Mark. I probably would not. Mark, wasn't it, Mark, in, in, uh, in, in uh, the former Soviet Union, didn't they have rehabilitation? Are we being re rehabilitated here? <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been rehabilitated. So what happened? Why is renal renovation back in favor? See, early on in 2014, a lot of Ardian's early supporters felt that the Medtronic trial wasn't designed properly. And Medtronic has revised its trial, and it actually improved the device. This time, the trial that's undergoing is called Sprile, and it includes patients who have taken anywhere from zero, so no meds, to three meds, whereas the Simplicity trial, patients took an average of five meds. This trial also excludes patients with isolated systolic hypertension who are typically resistant to renal renovation. So in these revised trials, the, the results have been a lot more favorable. Renal, renal renovation is showing that it works. So this exonerated Ardian's early backers, and of course, Gelfin and Levin, because it was their reputation really on the line. They were the ones that combed through medical libraries looking for clues about hacking the human body to beat back hypertension. They were the ones who tried to replicate a decades-old surgery that surgeons would use, would try to treat rather, unresponsive hypertension by severing nerves near the kidney. So that procedure worked, but it was dangerous. And Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin saw ablating tissue as a safer alternative. And they didn't find a lot of buyers or a lot of believers in Silicon Valley early on. But finally, the folks at the foundry bought in and Ardian was a quick success. And soon 
We saw dozens of other renal renovation approaches that were uh, being undertaken. Those all went away after the simplicity trial uh, produced its disappointing results. The, the entire area, as Howard will, will discuss, was declared dead until, of course, we saw some positive results from the new Medtronic trial. Now, renal renovation is back in favor. So how did Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin enjoy this roller coaster ride? Let's listen. Now is a popular time to be in renal renovation again. But I mean, it was such an right. amazing story where you had this, this idea that I think kind of uh, broke. At the time, it seemed MedTech seemed to be very iterative. There were people who were kind of taking swinging for singles and not for home runs. This was clearly a home run. And then there were so many people who followed you. There were rumored to be, what, 64, 62 companies out there that were, yeah. were looking at something similar. And then the whole thing just went poof after that. Uh, and now it's backing. What is it? What does the audience story sort of say about med tech? And are there any lessons that you learned sort of from from that about the sector or about yourselves? Uh, uh, well, after I got through the acute depression, one, one of the things that <laughs> we 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 realized was, you know, Mark says this a lot, and 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 I like it. I think it's actually a a correct quote. Originally, you know, historically. MedTech has been sharp or scalpel, right? It, it, you know, MedTech um, until, you know, I don't know, pacemakers, things like that, um, early on, you know, valves, there, there was no such thing as a, you know, a, a device where people sort of, um, you know, you had to prove it in, in a sense, you know. Uh, my scalpel is better than your scalpel, or my, you know, catheter is better than your catheter, or bed turns better, or whatever. But the, um, you know, what we learned, what, what at least I learned from the uh, Ardian story was sort of two things. One is that um, uh, people, you know, uh, literally a couple days after that trial was was announced they had this um uh you know analyst call where the physician who got on the analyst call uh basically said um renal denervation is dead we're done nothing to do with this is it even though nobody really even knew the the what the trial was or what the issues were or you know and and over time, people have been able to to, to look at it. Um, you know, we took a hit. Certainly, at least, um, you know, people. I'm sure people said, "Ah, you know, those smart asses. Uh, you know, they thought they were so smart. You know, knowing, you know, looking through science and this and that and whatever." And it, it you know, we. I. Not sure. I I doubted that the physiology was correct, but I certainly, you know, was concerned of the translation of the physiology to a clinical utility, and you know, it certainly made me doubt myself and and doubt the approach. Um, and but you had to, you know, believe and and hope that things would 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 work out. But it it was it was a it was not fun. Mm -hmm. yeah, actually, for for some reason, I was less upset with it for a number of reasons. First of all, I probably more physiologically sort of um, um, obsessively compulsive in the details of uh, physiologic pathway. And by that time, I succeeded in firmly convincing myself that 
uh, renal denervation is physiologically sound. And uh, we started digging into uh, taking it as sort of as a first entry into neuromodulation of organ function and um, systemic circulation, just an entry point of this big system. Uh, later on, you know, the GSK action potential Galvanian um, followed in the same pathways. We were there 10 years before them uh, trying to understand how to use uh, modification of neural pathways um, to change functions of organs because most of the drugs that you need, your body can create. Question is uh, why it's not doing it yet. And a lot of uh, those um, neurally mediated pathologies started. Uh, RDN for renal was just an easy, low, low hanging fruit, honestly, isolated organ accessible nerves. I didn't see that as, oh, this is the, the renal denervation. I thought, it, well, this is like pulling on the, show, um, on the tracks of sympathectomies to treat all sorts of diseases. People don't realize now that in the 1950s, asthma was a surgically treated disease. Um, you know, so were many other things. And then drugs stepped in and taking a pill was supposed to solve all the problems. And now we see a set point, you know, the metabolic disease. People are coming back to saying, well, you know, it looks like we are not getting a lot of new drugs in the pipeline and those drugs are all interacting with each other and making people feel worse. Why won't we go back to those discoveries um, when there were no com new drugs for those diseases, metabolic, pulmonary, cardiovascular? So our next entry into the field was a less known company called CBM and this is where I got seriously pissed because I, I still believe that that company fell victim to this sort of uh, pendulum swing in the, um, in, in the renal degeneration area. And it was company modulating uh, carotid body, the hemoreflex, you know, the, the neural pathway that um, responds to oxygen and CO2 in blood and in turn controls a lot of things um, in the body. Um, and we had a well-founded company um, slowly making progress for early clinical studies, and it just funding dried out because, again, if you mentioned the word hypertension and nerves and ablation at that stage, people would just throw up. Yes, so, you know, and uh, so that was the sort of a blow to us that was most because you know we were basically done with renal degeneration in 2009. Most of the work that we did, we did in 2003 and 2006 uh, when nobody heard about that. Um, fundamentally, um, is we wanted to take what we learned and apply it to other fields. And right now, uh, Howard actually just funded a um, Series B company in the modulation of splanchnik nerves, which is an uh, uh, approach that I think will create at least a big air. Uh, uh, a, a field for therapies is RDNB and hypertension, um, maybe even bigger, um, and also exploring the pathway that is sort of known between uh, maybe a dozen uh, basic scientists around, scattered around the world. Yes, so it's, it's not a discovery in fundamental sense, but never been used for anything practical. Um, it, it, it is a nerve that is harder to access, so we're running out of those simple targets like Vegas, but um, I, I think that um, renal denervation overall helped because it brought uh, these powerful physiologic mechanisms of um, um, neuromodulation to the attention of people uh, in drug companies and device companies and NIH who actually have power to move it forward finally. Um, and I keep asking myself a question, if instead of Metronic, um, 
RTN was acquired by J&J, would they also screw up? Yes. Or did they have fundamentally the knowledge of clinical trial designs that would allow them to choose the right patients and execute the trial correctly? Yes, in terms of controls. Uh, it, it will remain an open question forever. <laughs> you, know? you know, besides the fact you just made a lot of friends with those comments, I would like to point out that um, <laughs> while you're not fundamentally, you know, wrong, I, I think that you, what the problem is, is that venture capitalists, per se, well, they're not wrong that they want to return on their money. They're wrong in the sense that- How dare, how um, dare they? <laughs> how dare they actually want to return on their money? How dare they? They're wrong in the sense that, um, it, 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 you know, most of the things that are done that are novel are so even even when you get to like the completion of a PMA trial, it's just a start. Look at look at the chronicle, you know, like um, uh, CRT. Okay, it took ten years for after initial approval, basically, for things to you know show that there were actually you know mortality differences or admission differences or you know you know what I mean if you didn't have a large strategic behind it, it never would have survived as a, uh, as a startup. You know, that's, it, it, that's, that's where I think medical devices are having a real problem now where, you know, a, a drug, let's say you have a compound, right? The drug company will do preliminary trials in X different areas just to find out where it works. You know, where in a drug, in a device company, especially startup, you only have X dollars. And you're trying to, you know, you basically pull the trigger and you go down a route and you're right or you're wrong, where the actual underlying therapy could have multiple different things that it could do. So with already in trending toward a much happier ending, things must be a lot easier for the guys at Curitia, right? Let's find out after this break. Hey, everyone. Wanted to thank those MedTech Talk podcast listeners who have used their code to sign up for the MedTech conference. I'm really excited to see you all there in Minneapolis. It's uh, wonderful to be able to do this podcast, but I have very little direct interaction with listeners. So those of you who have used the code, again, thank you and uh, look forward to seeing you in Minneapolis. And please do make a point of uh, stopping by and saying hi and uh, letting me know what you think about the podcast. I'd love to get some direct face-to-face feedback for those listeners who haven't uh, registered yet uh, please do it's uh this is a great way for the med tech talk podcast community to get together and you can use the code and save yourself 200 dollars. that'll get you a night at the lowe's minneapolis hotel so this is a great chance for many of us to get together and again i look forward to meeting you all directly or at least those of you who have registered for the conference and i hope use the code the code is a, uh, a thank you for uh, for listening and uh really grateful for your participation in this program and look forward to seeing you on may 29th and may 30th in minneapolis so with already in tracking toward a happier ending you would think that mark gelfin and howard levin would have an easier time raising money for their startups not the case i talked with howard levin about raising money for axon which is a very cool company that's using neuromodulation to treat heart failure and he did get the series done. They raised a series A with money coming from Deerfield and actual potential venture capital in a large unnamed strategic. 
But uh, we'll talk with Howard about what was so brutal about this particular effort. And Mark will offer his thoughts about the state of medical device VCs. But they're both on the lookout for capital from new sources. And I'm not talking about China. We talked about that last week. But they've got an interesting approach to raising money from outside the medtech industry. Let's hear what they're doing. How are you finding your way around the, the financing challenge? Because, I mean, even with Artie and you, didn't, you had a hard time getting backing for that. That wasn't right. easy. Well, and that, that was a better environment this. So how are you, get, how are you getting things done today? It took two years for, for this sort of early stage thing. It took two years. So compare this to 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I could have had an idea, a uh, provisional patent, and three pigs, right? And I would get funded, right? Now, I had 10 patients with one year of follow-up, and it was brutal to get funded. Brutal. It's just the, 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 there's just not enough early stage money for things that are not, um, you know, next steps or next gens or whatever. You know what I mean? Even those are hard, but if you want to do something that's, I want to say, you know, revolutionary rather than evolutionary, um, it's, it's, it's really, really brutally hard. Uh, that's why we're relying on, um, government grants, uh, for a lot of early stage, you know, sort of startup type funding, why we're doing, um, you know, going to places like China, uh, and, and other for funding and, you know, everything, everything comes with good and bad. Uh, there's no, you know, one single right answer. But, um, you know, I still think medical devices have a lot of legs. I think where medical devices are going to move, though, and, and maybe Mark can give you his thought also, where I think they're going to move is more towards, I don't want to say drug device combinations, but where um, devices and drugs work better together, either mm -hmm. as a, a diagnostic. Um, to allow drugs to, um, to uh, you have higher responder rates for expensive drugs or to prevent side effects of certain uh, drugs to, to allow them to be used more widely or to actually release endogenous hormones. So, for example, instead of you giving a drug, that is difficult to give, you know, and maybe it's you can't be taken orally or maybe there's other things or you want to give it locally. You can actually use a device to release the same endogenous substance locally uh, to get a therapy or, um, you know, you're, you're delivering the device. I think Mark is really big into this concept of drug delivery. Uh, and you know, working itself. I'm not fighting the fact that I'm trying to tap into the drug company money for funding. Yes, and uh, <laughs> that's answering uh, right. I think uh, devices. Yeah, I think devices need to be. There's a lot of work where drug companies now. There's a little pendulum back towards that. Yeah, local drug delivery. Certainly, I think the true answer is that every decade, every uh, since it's a Change is important, and being able to look backwards is advantage. We have the running incubator for such a long time. Um, I think at any given time, there is some source of funding, and it keeps changing. And the traditional 
what we call device PCs are as good as dead. And they're as good as dead because they cannot hold stock long enough as the timelines increase. Yet, yet again, there. you're making friends. I'll tell you, you are yeah, really okay. oh, oh, working guys hard on it. Uh, uh, they they, they <laughs> Yeah, I care. No one uh, hear the story. No, nope. but uh, <laughs> they know it. They're working dead. So the there's um, but there are other people. I think at some point it was um, obvious that you know the strategics and corporate investors of venture arms uh, were stepping up uh, to fund early stage development because they're concerned with their pipelines. As Evan Norton puts it, you know they put the caboose ahead of the <laughs> ahead of the engine, uh, and it it produced some. Excellent results. You know, we saw um, in certain areas where suddenly you have companies like Google and such stepping up, or GSK or whatnot, stepping up to the plate where those VCs vanished uh, out of that space. Uh, we see um, government support. We saw influx of money from China, which is very hungry for innovation and uh, hungry for tech transfers, and but also just has too much money. Yes. And again, uh, we were looking um, at the Chinese markets, uh, not as much as a source of funding initially, but in a source of large clinical uh, base, you know, doing clinical studies there. Um, but then we started getting interested in um, self-pay pathways where, you know, you don't have to wait 20 years for reimbursement to, to get the acquisition. So. I, my answer to this is there is always something going on. This is not a static industry. It keeps changing. It keeps evolving. And what's, uh, right. what we would do today is totally dissimilar from what we would have done with the same idea 10 years ago. And but, probably but again, the reason we're still in, think, in the game. Yeah. But it, it, the, the, the only modification I would make to that is that it's not that we, like this one thing we just got funded, is a lot along the lines of sort of a Ardian type approach. It was started with the physiological thing, and then we moved it to humans, and then you know proved some stuff, etc., etc., etc. But we can't. You can't do that as a living, in a sense. You have to layer on all these other things um, if you want to be able to, you know. Um, have enough shots on goal that you're going to be able to be confident that at least some of the things uh, are going to be fundable moving forward. You know, you like to think that all of them are, but you, you, or you hope all of them are. No, un unless you are in AFIB and then um, all the companies get funded and then all of them get acquired. <laughs> Even if they all compete yeah. with each other. So how different are things today from when Howard Levin and Mark Elfin created Ardian? Well, financing remains a challenge and perhaps is even more of a challenge. The FDA is better, at least it's better than it was about 10 years ago. So that's good news. Reimbursement, however, is the new hurdle. And it's one that I asked about in context to Ardian. Was it something that they considered when they created the company? It led to an interesting conversation and to the raising of a question. Would they try to start Ardian again today? You might not like the answer. Did you bring reimbursement and sort of the 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 hospital side of things into those discussions early on, or not was it two thousand two? No, right, not in two thousand two. Yeah, now now it's uh, it, it's really funny. The company before Ardian was CHF Solutions, and I remember we were sitting in a board meeting with uh, some of the VCs, and you know we said, uh, it, and it was actually you know thirty year old 
technology that we that that we're able to make into a take away from you know a complex nephrology based thing and make it into a simple heart failure uh, cardiologist thing. And there were a lot of you know goods and bads we learned from it. But one of the things, just to illustrate your point about reimbursement, is we were talking to the board and said, you know, we're you know worried about reimbursement. And, then, and one of the board members is going, "What are you worried about reimbursement for? You know, that's that's not something we we need to think yeah, about." But, and know, uh, that was many. 2000, 99, 2000. Yeah, yeah. And, and reimbursement would be probably just one of the few things we would do differently or don't do. You know. I think the world has changed so much that I would not dare to bring today a, a therapy for uh, hypertension or diabetes. Listen, you know, you, you cannot treat numbers. You need to treat diseases. And uh, humans are like lumpers by, by our nature. We want to find one number and we put under that gigantic umbrella lots of people with different etiologies of, um, and origins of their condition. and. I think we, nowadays we would probably always look at the patient selection as a first step. Which patients within that group of hypertension are you going to treat and why? Um, or that's that's the way we approach things now. That probably was the biggest change. I don't think we would yeah. get through the filter with uh, uh, the, any funding um, VC um, with uh, just... Uh, Saying, right. oh, we're going to treat hypertension. Right. The in, early in your, stage money, the, the early stage money today doesn't necessarily require you to have reimbursement, a known pathway, but they will discount you for, even if you know it, you know, if you have to go get a new code, you get discounted for that. You know, if you can show that you can piggyback on somebody's reimbursement, there's Good and bad, you know. If it's mm-hmm. if it's good reimbursement, then it's good. If it's bad reimbursement, you know, like not enough reimbursement for what they're looking for, then you know now it becomes an issue. So you you need to have a plan for reimbursement. You have to have a reasonable thing, and you know it it's it makes you drive a lot of the other decisions in terms of everything from how much can my device cost to. Um, you know, how many people are going to use it into how long is it going to take to get the clinical data in order to get a new yeah. code and stuff like that. And, and you lose, you know, it, it, it all goes into the funding risk. Yeah. You know, you know, in a way, if you compare renal denervation and how things went over ambitious and wrong because of Uber's tool tower, which was a much better sort of executed pathway uh, of innovation mm-hmm. and, the main difference with all strike immediately that initially Tavers started from this is the small group of patients that are too old and comorbid for surgery. Surgeons know they have no options. If we don't do something, they will die. Let's go and get an indication for these patients. Yes. So that allows that early entry into the market space with a what yeah, you would but, consider but, but, a, a prototype. No, but Mark, you, you actually bring up a really good point, though. The, the point is that look at the difference between the two clinical things. If you look at TAVR, right, there's a entrenched belief that reducing the gradient, the aortic gradient, down to a normal number is the answer. You don't, you don't have to prove that you know, early on, you know, maybe down the line, right? But you don't have to prove early on that 
it's better to have a normal gradient than a really high gradient, right? So if you can show that, that endpoint is a belief. There was a similar thing early on in, um, in hypertension where if I drop blood pressure by a lot, it was considered good. And if simplicity three would have worked, people probably would have continued along what those lines. You know, there was, there was, you know, some, right. Maybe fallacy, but, or maybe not, you know, nobody really knows, but in the end, they would have believed that, um, you know, reducing blood pressure in and of itself was good enough. There, there are always constituencies that mm-hmm. don't like what you're doing if you have a new thing, right? With CHF Solutions, the nephrologist hated us. They wrote letters to the uh, American Society of Nephrology, wrote a letter to the FDA basically saying, or somebody within it, you know, basically saying, um, you know, how can you let cardiologists do ultrafiltration? It's unsafe, et cetera. And, you know, there's, I personally don't think that's true. I understand Mm -hmm. that, you know, we were stepping on their turf and we certainly didn't do a good job of working with them, which is what we should have done in order to, you know, make the transition or work together or whatever. Um, Where, you know, in Taver, you're not, you, you really weren't working against anybody in a sense. You know, well, the, the cardiologists and there cardiac surgeons no, no, yeah, in no option patients. Uh, no drugs that could help you fix the, the, the stenotic valve. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not like as if with, with um, metabolic disease or asthma or something where you fight, or hypertension for that matter, we're fighting right. against uh, optimal drug therapies. And the question comes yeah. up is what is optimal? Um, or what is drug resistant? Uh, all those questions that uh, renal degeneration sort of brought to the attention of device companies were never um, looked upon. We never randomized against optimal drug therapy before, uh, vis-a-vis the society of physicians that um, you know really uh, are good at it. And um, also thinking about it now, why did we expect renal degeneration to work better than Drugs, because most of the hypertension drugs uh, share the physiologic pathway with renal degeneration. But, but remember, but, but remember, right? It was originally, as as are most devices, an alternative to be used in drug failures. Right? That's mm-hmm. where medical devices usually are thing. Yeah. And you know, it, it makes you have to look. at It's really and maybe not appropriate to this discussion, but you know, or this this today's discussion but you know if i was going to take the same approach that is used by some for looking at renal degeneration looking at other things right in that case why would i allow anybody to have a stent or a uh, bypass surgery unless they maximize you proved that they maximized all of the other therapies that they had first uh, and, and, you know, did drug testing to show that they took their statin, you know, did, mm-hmm. you know, watch them physically take their beta blocker. You know, that's sort of the, you know, it's, it, there's no consistency here among uh, real world. And, and I personally believe that, you know, what there's a difference between looking at it scientifically and does the concept work scientifically versus 
um, does the concept work in the real world? Do people do better in the real world because they don't take their drugs or they don't do this or they don't do that? On average, do these people do better with a particular intervention than, you know, forcing them to do this? Because nobody once the trial's done, nobody's going to do that. I'm curious, the doctors groups you mentioned, do you feel that they're less uh, protective of their turf these days, given all the pressure on healthcare to, to find values and a new way to, to, to treat patients? Or is there still that, that turf war going on? Oh, it's still the turf war. And I will personally take responsibility for being stupid and not um, <laughs> recognize it and being more appropriate previously. It's not that they're necessarily wrong. Right. It's every, everybody's just nervous about change. They're trying to. There are two things. One is, of course, you know, the turf war. But the other one is from the reality, they're physicians who care and want to make sure their patients are getting the right therapies. And we're nervous that, um, you know, there was a novel way to do something that they didn't feel uh, comfortable with. And, you know, mm -hmm. we yeah, didn't no, do a good job of educating them and whatever. But but there are, you know, certainly there are all sorts yeah, yeah. of things. No, it's, a, it's a not, uh, it, not much changed, honestly. I am I, now working in the uh, sort of this lung cancer area. That's our first um, attempt. It's a very, very big, I think, with very big device opportunity from the 30,000 um, foot view. So... Um, but when we started dissecting that market and looking for opportunities in that space, we see there is a lot of powerful players. Yeah. Their surgery is powerful. Radiation oncology is powerful. You know, you have to. And I would just say recently in Europe, I was uh, presenting to a very powerful surgical panel. You know, they basically what they said in a sort of the more bluntly than you would hear in this country is that get off my turf, um, for, I will support you if you take non-surgical candidates. And then you go, but if you touch surgical candidates, brace for the fight. <laughs> wow, and, really? Uh, yeah, no, and, and it's uh, pretty blunt. And understandably, that's a big, big uh, revenue generator for the hospital. You know, look, just look yeah. at the size of their building. Yes, and you understand that building was paid by somebody for a reason. Um, right. But, but, you, but you know, I mean, it, to to a certain to a certain extent, it's that for clearly, right? It's oh, monetary to results. a certain extent, <laughs> right? To a certain extent, they believe that surgery is the optimal treatment. You yes. take it out. Yeah. And, the word, it out, and the you word, and the word, believe, Howard, is an excellent word because there never been a single randomized trial. So, is a surgery right. producing best results because it's a best? therapy always producing best results because it cherry pick best patients out of it uh, or nobody's least, looked least comorbid patient yes right terrific well this has been a, a very enjoyable conversation uh I, I hope you enjoyed it as well and uh as i said earlier I mean, uh, this was a lot of fun Ardian was such a such a i think the the for my career, at least, was sort of the, the preeminent med tech story, just seeing its, its birth and its rise and its fall and now its rebirth. Um, it must be it must be better times for you seeing the, the space sort of uh, um, looked at in a more positive fashion again. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's it makes us 
feel uh, a lot better. Or, or <laughs> less worse. <laughs> lack of, or less worse, one or the other. <laughs> no, but uh, you see, that's the optimist pessimist thing. Yeah. Better documented than that. Excellent. Well, thanks again for your time. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much to Howard Levin and Mark Gelfin for their time. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed both parts of this interview. I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to see you share it on Twitter and uh, get involved in the conversation. So if you do share it on Twitter or on LinkedIn, please tag me. On Twitter, I am at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to uh, say hi and hear your feedback about not only these two episodes, but the podcast in general. You can also reach me via email. My email address is tom at healthogy.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Please let me know what you think about the podcast, uh, who we should be talking to, any other kind of feedback, and uh, any thoughts on the MedTech Conference as well. Once again, the MedTech Conference is happening on May 29th and May 30th. Go to medtechconference.com. You can check out who we have up there on stage. We will have keynote interviews with Kevin Lobo of Stryker and Kevin Conroy of Exact Sciences. Got great investor panels, discussion about M&A. It's all up there. Go to medtechconference.com and check out the agenda. We would love to see you there. And if you do sign up, please do not forget to use your MedTech Talk code. Again, as I mentioned in the break, we've got a uh, nice representation of MedTech Talk listeners, at least folks who have used the code. And it'll be wonderful to meet you all. And if you're at all curious as to who else is listening to these podcasts, you should join us in Minneapolis. Go to medtechconference.com. And please, please, please use your MedTech Talk code. That's a wrap. Tune in next time. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the MedTech Talk podcast. 